All right, let's get down to the root of it. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about how happy you are this morning. Okay? Or more importantly, I want you to think, very, just here for a few moments, on how unhappy you are. Okay? I want you to think about what's going wrong in your life right now. I want you to think about the things that you hate. I want you to think about how your, your, whatever it is that's in your life that you are very upset right now, whether it be with your spouse, whether it be with your children, whether it be with your work, whether it be with your church, uh, whatever it is, I want you to just think about that for a second, okay? We're going to send around a survey, and we, what we want you to do is fill it out so that we can know what is making you unhappy, especially in the, in the context of the church, so that we can take a look at it, and we can address it, and we can make everybody happy. So here in a few moments, as you're thinking, the ushers are going to come. I'm just joking, okay? Some of you, that made you more unhappy, right? And you're like, oh, that's great. Now I'm really ticked off this morning. Here's the issue. We all like to be catered to. There's no way someone can sit in here this morning and say, I really don't like to be catered to. I think every single one of us sitting in here, we really like to be catered to. And what happens is, when we really give in to this mindset, we fall into this consumeristic model. We, can fa- we, we fall into this consumeristic mindset that says, I'm here to consume. That's the world we live in, Right? That is the world we live in. If something's not right, I need to share it with someone so they can make it right because I'm unhappy. I go to a restaurant, I'm not happy with something. I need you to make it happy because, make me happy because I'm paying for this. And I get that there's some level of exchange there. But at some point, that mindset continues to creep into us and creep into us and saturate us and saturate us. And what we become, we become a type of people that says, everything is about me. I'm unhappy. I'm going to share with you why I'm unhappy. And if it's about you, I need you to change. I want you to change. I want you to change what's not making me happy. I am a consumer. I am someone that is partaking. I want you to make me happy. And that's the world we fall into. Let's really bring, it really comes down to this, and we bring this into the church. We bring this question within the church that says, Am I being served? Am I being served? The question that we should be asking is, Am I serving? Not, am I being served? Are my needs being met? Are my preferences being catered to? Are my preferences being, you know, uh, all met? It comes down to, am I serving? Am I contributing? Not just consuming, but am I contributing? You see, it was no different than in Jesus' time. We're going to talk, talk about His death and resurrection today. And there's no difference in Jesus' time. They're in the upper room, okay? This is right at the end of Jesus' life. He's lived 33 years. He's, he's been in the ministry for like three, three and a half years, okay? He's walked with these disciples, at least 12 of them, very closely, okay? And he's poured his life into these guys for three to three and a half years. He's poured his life into these guys for three to three and a half years. We're talking Jesus, incarnate, God, man, Correct? For three and a half years, he spent time with these guys. He ate with them. He, they, they, they stayed together. They, they, they did life together. They journeyed together. For three and a half years. And yet, in John 13, before Jesus goes to the cross, we read about them having this dinner in the upper room. Jesus is getting ready to go. The, the reality of the cross is there. He's getting ready to, the crucifixion is happening, will later happen that evening in a sense. They're having this dinner in the upper room. Guess what the disciples are talking about? 
Guess what they're arguing about? Guess what they're debating about? Which one of them are the, is the greatest? I'm good. I, it's about me. Well, wait, wait, hang on a second. Wait a minute. Who died and made you king? It's about me. I'm the one that's the greatest. I'm the one that's going to get to sit close to Jesus. I'm the one that... And so for... You've got these guys that walked with Jesus. They saw... I mean, they heard. They saw miracles. They saw all these things. They, they lived his... Somewhat lived out his philosophy, his, his passion, his vision, his ministry. And yet at the very end, when he's getting ready to leave, they're arguing about who's the greatest. That... Guys, do you get the irony of this? Do you get the, that this is literally the antithesis of Jesus? And then you have Jesus sitting there. If you forget what his message was about, he's sitting there who stated earlier, found in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says, For even the Son of God, or the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for the ransom of many. Guys, this is a message that was not embraced then, and it's hardly embraced in our world today too. This concept that says, I'm here to serve, not to be served. In Jesus' world, in his vision, in his mindset, when you go and you read the Sermon on the Mount, we've talked about this in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, I believe. When you look at that whole Sermon on the Mount and Jesus begins to articulate what people are going to look like that makes up his kingdom, what the, what the, the, the kingdom constituents, the kingdom people, his disciples are going to look like, he lays out this thing where he says, these people are going to, they're going to grab the concepts of, of the first shall be last. The last will be first. Enemies will be prayed for. Unrighteous anger is like murder. Words kill. Thoughts are the same as actions. Don't worry about tomorrow. Focus on the eternal things, etc., etc., etc. But in our world, this is what we hear. Look out for number one. Hey, listen to me. I'm unhappy. And if I'm going to get what I want, I'm going to make someone's life, until I get that, I'm going to make someone's life miserable. That's the world we live in. You've got to look out for number one. And if you don't look out for number one, no one else is going to look out for you. You need to be assertive. You need to be aggressive. You need to, you need to hang in there. You need to stick out for what you want. Don't show grace. Stick up for yourself. Get all that you can at any expense. Doesn't that sound like our world today? That's our world today. And in Jesus' world, it's, it's not about you. It's about the others. It's about... Praying for enemies. It's about the, the, literally the upside down, inside out concept. Yet Jesus is still calling his disciples to his way of life today. There's a story, a football story, happened a couple years ago, last year actually. St. Clairsville, Ohio, something good that's come out of Ohio. I say that tongue in cheek, right? I just, I know. I just ticked you guys off that are from Ohio, and I don't mean to. But anyhow, St. Clairsville, Ohio, there was a high school. They had this really good football team. There was a guy on it named Michael Ferns, who is a 2014 uh, commit to, Mich- to U of M, next, obviously next year, 2014, right? So this guy is an all-star running back, okay? Michael Ferns. They're playing this away game, and Michael Ferns, um, 
He, he takes the ball, he runs, I think, 50-some yards. This happened in a game, 50-some yards, and they're, they're, try, you know, they're, they're, they're going ahead and they're trying to win this game. So he runs this ball 50-some yards. He gets down to the one-yard line, and he steps out of bounds. And the way it was positioned, and, and it's kind of cool, you can go on YouTube and watch this, but the way it's positioned, the way the camera angles and all this is that, and where the refs were at, they thought he went over the goal line, so they single, they single or signal. They signal a touchdown, in which Michael Ferns is like, no, 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 I didn't score. I stepped out of bounds. I stepped out of bounds. The coach of the St. Clairsville High School comes out and says the same thing. He stepped out of bounds. It's not a touchdown. And so they reverse the call, and as they reverse the call, they bring in this other kid in by the name of Logan Thompson. And there's a picture of Logan Thompson here with his dad. Should be a picture. There it is. And they bring in Logan Thompson. And they tell Logan, you're going to run the ball in. He's like an underclassman, and he, he is, uh, he's never scored a touchdown by any, by any means or anything like that. But they bring Logan Thompson in, and they say this. And I'm going to say it. This is what they said. Follow Michael's butt. Okay, because Michael's going to block for you and he's going to open up a hole and all you have to do is follow his butt into the end zone. That's all we want you to do, Logan. And so Logan does just that and he scores a touchdown. Now, what's really interesting about this story is the day before, Logan beats down the bathroom door to find his dad dead, had a stroke. His dad had went to all of Logan's football games. He didn't even know if he should go to school. He didn't know if he should go to this football game. The coach even said, you know what, I don't, it was an away game. I don't even know if you should go to the away game, Logan. You know? But everybody said, you know what, he needs this. There needs to be a break from what he's experiencing. And so he's, he's grieving the loss of his dad. And he does this in the next picture. You're going to see the aftermath of this moment. Where he's hugging Michael. And Logan, Michael and Logan embrace. And it was like the best thing that ever happened to them. His mom said, Logan's mom said, that this is the best thing that happened for our family this weekend. It just took our mind off of what the, the tragedy that we just experienced. Logan was absolutely ecstatic of what just took place. I share that story with you to say, that's the way it's supposed to be, right? Isn't that the way the world should operate where we look at other things, we look at other individuals and we say, how can I really bring, how can I bring value into their life? How can I just show some type of gratitude? How can I serve this other person? That's the way it's supposed to be. Jesus is in the upper room. He didn't have any more time to teach these guys per se. And quietly, as they're at this table, as his disciples are arguing over who's going to be the greatest and debating, quietly he gets up from the table, he picks up a bowl of water, he picks up a towel, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. The creator of the world, may I remind you, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the son of God, washes the feet of these disciples. John records this in chapter 13. He says, Jesus says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus takes one of the lowest jobs ever. Everyone was waiting in that room probably for that person that washes people's feet to come in and wash their feet. I'm not washing your feet. That's not my job. Well, I'm not washing their feet. I'm not washing your stinky feet either. 
That's not my job either. So if you think I'm going to wash your feet, you've got another thing coming. Everyone's kind of sitting around. They're arguing and debating about who's the greatest. They just kind of overlook this whole thing. They got these stinky feet, and that was a custom of their time was to wash their feet because, they, you know, the whole story. They wore sandals, and they got dirt and all this other stuff. And even with us with socks and shoes and things like that, I mean, it's still a job that I'm not so sure anyone would say, I would love to wash people's feet for a living. You know what I'm saying? So Jesus gets up, and he washed. And they had servants to do this, but at this time, no one came to do it. And Jesus steps up, and he washed the feet. Listen to what John continues to say in verse 16, or Jesus says in the Gospel of John in verses 16 and 17, Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that if you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus came to serve and instructs you, and you, and you, all of us in here, He instructs us to do exactly the same. He serves, but it's not based on the the ROI, the return on the investment like we do a lot of times. It's like, well, you know what, I'll serve this person because I think I can get something in return here, right? Jesus never did that. There was no return on it. And He served. How do you do that? How does the person go and just pick up a towel and say, I'm going to serve? I'm going to serve in one of the most nastiest positions. How do you serve a wife that doesn't deserve it? How do you, do, how do you serve a husband that is physically abusive to you? How do you serve a husband that is phys, or physically or verbally abusive to you? How do you serve a child that is being disrespectful? How do you serve a parent that treats you like a child? How do you serve a coworker that stabs you in the back whenever they can? How do you serve someone, a fellow church attender here, that, that gossips about you when no one else is when, when you're not around and they talk about you? How do you serve people like that? How do you pick up the towel instead of just saying, I'm going to let someone else do it? Jesus came to serve. He didn't come to make his name great at that time. He didn't come to advance his agenda. He didn't come to win popularity. He didn't come for people to bow down at that particular time. He didn't come for to be their earthly king or their political leader. But Jesus came to serve. He came to serve. And he's calling each of us that are his disciples. If we, if we say that we're following him as a disciple of him, he's saying, I'm, I'm calling you to do the same. Right now, we're going to take communion. Because right after they did this, they, they took communion, and, or they, they, in this context, they took communion. And, and I think it's very befitting for us to take communion because it draws us back to what are we about? What are we about? What are we about, not just as an individual Christian, but what are we about as a church? Jesus said, I have come to serve. I'm calling you to do the same. I'm calling you to pick up the towel. I'm calling you to lay aside your preferences. I'm calling you to lay aside your wants, your desires, your passions, and all of that for the sake of others because that's what I've done for you. And so this morning, right now, we're going to take communion. And as you do, you might want to spend a few moments just kind of reflecting, maybe having some personal time with God to say, you know what, God? You know, I'm, you know, I may be a little off here. Hey, one of the things I want to share with you too, you don't have to be a member or a partner here at Element to take communion. The only requirement is that you're part of the family of God. You can't celebrate something that you don't participate in, something that you haven't committed to. And so if you're a child of God to hear this morning, 
I want you to come and I want you to remember the life of Christ. What life, what, what Christ, what Jesus has done for you. Where he literally has taken his life and he said, you know what? You don't deserve to be served. But I'm coming to serve you. I love you. You don't deserve to be served either. But I'm picking up the towel and I'm washing, I'm laying down my life for you. And so this morning, the only requirement is, is that we are a child of God. And maybe this is a time where we sit, we reflect and we say, you know what, God? I'm, I'm a little bit off base and I need forgiveness. It's for you. It's for you to participate in and celebrate in. I want to have a couple elders come right now and just break the bread for us, demonstrating the life, the flesh, the body of Christ being broke for us. Where He came to serve each of us. Where He, he voluntarily laid His life down for each of us. I want you to come in your moment when you feel like it's appropriate. Come, take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, and remember what Christ has done for you. And remember the life that He's calling you to. A life of service. A life that says, it's not about you. It's about me. It's about my kingdom. The kingdom to come. Would you do that as we, uh, as we spend a few moments here, uh, creating a few moments to, to allow you to do that? Please come at your own will. After dinner that night, Jesus gets up, he takes his disciples, as we read this whole story, he gets up, he takes his disciples, and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And his heart is extremely heavy, he knows what's pressing upon him, he knows what's coming, he knows what lies ahead. Um, He's probably, you know, I, I think one of the things he probably realized was, for the very first time, and I've shared this with you before, I think one of the very first times he the realization of being separated from the Father really probably kicked in because there was a time, and if you read uh, the passage back in the Psalms where uh, when Jesus, or the Psalms, it's like a prophecy about when Jesus was crucified, the sins of you and I, of the whole world laid upon Him. Um, He cries out and says, My God, why have you forsaken me? I think he's starting to realize this, and his heart, as I said, is extremely heavy. He brings a few of his disciples in with him to the kind of to the, 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 the space where he's going to spend some really intense time with the Father, and he, he brings his disciples with him for company, but instead they sleep. Matthew 26, 38, he says to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So Jesus slips away. He spends some time in very, very deep prayer. The Bible tells us that he even sweat blood. I mean, talk about an intense anguish that he's experiencing, this this, severity of the moment, probably a, a battle between flesh and spirit, because in verse 39 we read, it says, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground. He prays this prayer. He says, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. 
Yet not as I will, but as you will. I think at this time he's really struggling. I mean, he's struggling because of the, again, this moment being pressed upon him. And I think there is this, this concept of flesh and, and, and his spirit going at it saying, you know, I don't want to do this, but if there's any other way, can you possibly make this happen? In fact, he asks three times, take this cup. Take this cup, a cup meaning, you know, this life. Take this whole moment here. If there's any other way, can it be done any other way? And God, the Father, probably reminded him to say, in reemphasizing his words that Jesus himself stated earlier in his ministry in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Maybe during this time, God the Father is saying, Jesus, you're the one. You're the only way. You are it. Meanwhile, his disciples are sleeping very soundly. And about that time in the garden, the, the garden becomes overcome by an army. And this is at nighttime. Again, it's, it's you know, uh, happening. All this is taking place at night. One man emerges from the pack and leans out, leans into Jesus, greets him, and kisses him on the cheek. Now, this isn't really anything abnormal. Kissing on the cheek is like a handshake to you and I today in our world. Jesus looks at Judas, who kissed him in Luke chapter 22, verse 48. And Jesus asks him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Luke 23 reminds us, if we go back or go forward a chapter, Luke 23 reminds us or tells us that Jesus rebuked the whole army somewhat poses the question, have I led a rebellion for you to come at me with clubs and swords and all these weapons to come at night? Am I that type of criminal? Am I that type of person that you would do all this at night time? Jesus is then taken, he's led away with some of his disciples following closely. We read about John and Peter kind of following closely, but enough to where they're not in danger. We read later that Peter would deny him. We read all these things about the disciples kind of staying a safe distance. And so from midnight, from, from midnight to 9 a.m., Jesus goes through five or six mock trials. And we say mock trials is because all of them were illegal. They would have never done anything at nighttime. That is not how they conducted, that is not the, the, the way they did things then. They never did anything at night. But with Jesus, five or six of these trials, five or six of these mock trials, they all happen at nighttime. He goes before two Jewish leaders, Annas and Caiaphas, and the question finally gets asked by one of the Jewish leaders, and they say, they ask this question, are you the Christ? They lay out the million-dollar question, are you the Christ? Jesus answers yes, and the gloves are off. They take him to Pilate. Why Pilate? Because the Jews couldn't put someone to death, and they wanted something more. They wanted death in this situation. So they take him before Pilate. Pilate says, you know what, he's not guilty. I don't know what all this is about. Uh, he's not guilty. He's, he hasn't done anything. And so they take him. They then take him from Pilate to King Herod. King Herod really doesn't have anything to do with it. He sends him back to Pilate. Pilate says, look, he hasn't done anything. And all Pilate wanted to do was, Pilate wanted to punish him and then release him. The crowd wanted none of that, though. The crowd wanted blood. They wanted something to happen. They wanted blood. So they take him. They beat him. They flog him. They scourge him. And the whole process of the scourging is a process where the guys who did it considered it an art. These guys were very good at it. Uh, they used, they used a, a, a tool like the cat of nine tails is what they called him. 
and it would have bones and pieces of glass and things like that at the tips of them. And as they would, as they would whip someone, it would tear and just literally rip the flesh to the bone. But they wouldn't do it too much because they didn't want to kill the person. Although two-thirds of the people who would suffer, suffer this process would, would eventually die. Then the Bible says three very short words. They crucified him. There's no elaboration. It just says they crucified him. There's no elaboration because everyone would have known what that meant. Everyone would have known exactly what that meant. It was a horrendous way to die. It was, a, it was a torturous way to die. It was a method that was designed by the Romans. And the only thing, one of the things that they, they that, 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 that the whole crucifixion did that they really wanted to happen was it prolonged death. To the point to where someone would end up, if they could hang that long, someone would end up just kind of suffocating themselves. So they take Jesus and they crucify him and everyone would have known exactly what that hideous thing of crucifixion would have meant. But let me share with you a quick little noteworthy tidbit. About a thousand years before his death, there was a process that God was teaching them, a, a, um, not a tradition, but a custom that God was teaching them. And what would happen is um, there would be a sound of a ram's horn sounded, it's called a shofar, would sound, about, would sound two times a day. And when people would hear that sound of the horn being blowed, everyone would stop to recognize that there was a sacrifice being made upon their behalf. And so we've got a little clip here of, of the sound, and I want you to listen to it. What you're going to hear first is you're going to hear the crowd, and then you'll hear the sound coming in. And when they would hear this sound, again, they, would, they were instructed to stop. But go ahead and, and listen to this sound. times a day they would hear that sound. And when you heard that sound, they knew that there was a sacrifice being made by the priest. And a lamb was being uh, lifted up on their behalf, and they were instructed to stop everything they were doing. Silence represented gratitude and respect. This symbolism that God was trying to teach His people was, was, was the symbolism that sin brings death. And God was conditioning His people to understand this. A reminder that would, that would be ongoing. A reminder that there was a cost there was a cost attached to forgiveness. Isaiah 52 says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. John the Baptist identified him. If you remember that whole story, when John the Baptist came out of the woods and he was coming to baptize Jesus, he sees Jesus and he lays out these words, Look, here comes the Lamb of God. Hebrews 9.22 says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything he cleansed be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Jesus became that lamb on you and our behalf. Sacrifices became so elaborate that they would lift them high up in the air so everyone could see to a certain degree. Everyone could see. And eventually it became twice a day. It would happen at 9 o'clock in the morning. And three o'clock in the afternoon. When do you think Jesus' sacrifice happened? We're told in Mark fifteen twenty five that it was nine o'clock in the morning. 
when they crucified him. Nine o'clock, the people would have heard the sound, knowing that a sacrifice is being made, but not connecting the two. So nine in the morning, Jesus is sacrificed. His crucifixion begins. And at noon, everything goes dark. Can you imagine what the people would have thought? Everything goes dark. In fact, we're told that this was a time of Passover, so there would have been hundreds or thousands of people pouring into Jerusalem, pouring into this place to do their sacrificing, and everything begins to go dark. They had brought, again, their sacrifices. 33 years before this, the shepherds experienced a great light announcing the birth of Christ, and now we see the antithesis of darkness overcoming, darkness representing His death. When did He die? kind of interesting. Matthew, Mark, Luke all record this event and state at 3 p.m. What many didn't realize was that at this sacred time, the ultimate sacrifice was happening. Not inside the city walls, but outside, taking place outside the walls. The sacrifice that would cover the sins for all once and for all. At this exact time when Jesus was, his death happened at three o'clock, we read also that there was another event taking place. And this event happened in the temple where they had a huge curtain, a huge thick curtain, a huge high curtain that no one could really reach up and grab a hold of. But this huge, this huge curtain that separated the main area where the people could come into and the Holy of Holies, the place where no one could come. It was the place where God resided. And so this veil, this curtain was symbolism and represented the separation between God and man. Uh, man being sinful, God being holy. We read at this time at 3 o'clock when Jesus finally died, that this exact time the curtain of the temple was ripped in half, not from the bottom up, but from the top down, representing that no man could have ever done this. Now there is no separation, from, separation between God and man. Jesus came to serve and is calling us to serve in that exact lifestyle. We're going to close with a couple songs. The first one we're going to sing is Jesus Paid It All. And I want you just to resonate with these words because, I, again, I want you to remind you that the reason Jesus came was to serve. And He's calling you and I to that same exact lifestyle. Not to advance our what we want. Not to advance the things of us. But to, but to be a part of His kingdom. Jesus came to serve. He paid it all. He paid the sacrifice that we would have had to have stand in. He took that and paid it himself. Lean into the words of this song. Let it just resonate with you. Because this is exactly as we read about Jesus paying it all for us. Serving us. Again, this is the life that Jesus has called us into. That is calling us into as his disciples. To serve. To serve one another. To serve others. Would you just stand as we sing this song? Father, we just give you thanks this morning that you paid our debt. God, that you came to serve, that you took it upon yourself to take something that we could never do, something that we could never accomplish. And God, you chose to do that. God, we give you great thanks. We bow down in your presence. And God, may we take the mantle in which you're charging us with and to serve as you did. To advance your kingdom, the vision of your kingdom, the, 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 the passion of your kingdom that is in, in the antithesis of ours.
God, may we not lose sight. Remind us again the cost that came with that sacrifice of you. And it's in great praise and celebration that we sing that song and we continue to worship you here today. In your name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. The great news about his death was it not only paid the debt, but it gives us the power to live. As we live in the 21st century, it gives us the power to pick up the towel, to pick up the water, to go and wash each other's feet, to wash feet of people that don't deserve it, to reach to them, to share this great news, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. His spirit is alive today. His spirit lives within us. We are promised that at at that moment of salvation that God gives us His gift of His Holy Spirit to give us the power to lead us into righteousness, to give us direction, to comfort us in times of need. We have overcome. Jesus has overcome. He has overcome and He continues to give us that power as well. We're going to close with one last song and I want your heart to just reach down and just grab a hold of the lyrics of this word of this song we have overcome we don't have to live in the philosophy of this world we don't have to live in this consumeristic mindset but we can live above and beyond that serving like jesus did serving as he called us would you stand as we close with this one last song we will overcome